2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
3: Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. The podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer, so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman.
0: Thanks again to Panacea Financial for supporting our health system science series. Here again with the inimitable Dr. Ned Palmer, MedPeds physician and Panacea Financial's chief strategy officer, to discuss today's question, which is what's going on with student loan debt?
1: Student loan debt, especially medical student loan debt, is high and getting higher. This year, the AAMC's report on student debt was published reporting that the median graduate from medical school with student debt has $200,000 on the day of graduation. That's up anywhere from 3 to 4% every single year it's risen over the last decade.
0: I mean, I'm in the Midwest, but $200,000 is a lot of money. It's like pretty much almost what my house costs. And I have a pretty big house. <laughs>
1: and those are Midwestern dollars in real estate, which go pretty far compared to
0: <laughs> Correct. But still, you could live, you know, in, in the Midwest in a pretty decently sized house for the cost of med school debt. And then, God, how much of that's going to be like just straight up interest over the the repayment terms. It's, my wife has a crap ton of debt. It, it's, it's well over 300 at this point. And I remember uh, looking at it right after she got done with med school. And then like four years later, when she was a resident and um, just making the minimum payments. And it's like, wait a minute, what, (laughs) how is it more and more and what? Um, so it's, it's crazy, but yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely a worry. So how is Panacea helping uh, with this issue? You guys, um, just forgiving all, uh, students debt or able to do that yet or.
1: Yeah, it's honestly, it's a program we're pretty proud of having $1.6 trillion worth of cash injection into the economy. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, sorry, just, uh, what, what your wife experienced was not at all unique. That $200,000 that we talk about every year does not take into consideration that when you finish, you go into a training program where you're underpaid for anywhere from the next three to seven years. You're not making full interest payments on that loan. So you're still underwater. For my own personal situation, I graduated with $290,000 in student debt and it rose to 380 by the time I had finished my residency. Uh, now that I'm done with two more years of fellowship and just now getting to pay it off, it's at $412,000 uh, before this year's COVID freeze.
0: You guys should put like uh, Ned's student loan debt um, as a little counter on your website so people in, in real time see it either go up or you pay it off.
1: <laughs> I, I, I actually like that if it didn't hurt me so emotionally
0: um right yeah but, sorry i laugh but that's that's a soul crushing amount of debt i was military um, so i don't have that issue but um my heart goes out to you
1: and you've seen it through your wife you're still living it because she bought a house but instead that's of getting right. a house she got a diploma um, right, exactly. <laughs> um so the the state of student debt is is bad and getting worse and mm, frankly uh, as sad as it makes me, none of the policies put forward seem like they would be targeted towards medical students or medical education or even graduate education. $10,000 forgiven, even $50,000 forgiven, as sad as it would, it makes me, make, makes me feel is not enough and is, is woefully inadequate to, to target the state of student debt. What Panacea Financial is working on is what we want is to get people out of high interest student loans into much lower student loans through refinancing at much earlier stages. So they don't gather money so quickly um, and and continue to drown you for the rest of their career. Like how early? Well, the first, deci- the first decision that's most important is to find out if your projected career is going to qualify for public service loan forgiveness. It's really, it's the most important financial decision of somebody who has student loans. And, and that has to be the first question asked. Um, if you're looking at a career where you're likely not eligible for public service loan forgiveness because you're working in a for profit hospital, um, you're not working for the state or local or tribal governments, um, or you're not planning on working full time for a nonprofit and you don't qualify, you really ought to be looking at refinancing as, as soon as you are assured that you're not going to be. Eligible for a forgiveness program.
0: Gotcha. So, when do most people make that choice, though? Because this is pretty foreign to me.
1: I. That's that's, most people make that choice uh, towards the end of residency, when they've last
0: like second two years, last one to two years, when when they're they're really
1: looking securing a job. Exactly. When they're really looking at the career, what comes next, where they want to live geographically, really planning and making those next steps. Um, so it's really towards the end of residency that this this starts to come up. Um, and then once that future plan's in place, is, that's the best time to really start exploring your options and seeing if refinancing your student loans is, is, is right for you.
0: You know, um, we've said before in these little conversations, these mini talks we've had that uh, reminding medical students that they are adults, but... Um, and uh, hopefully this doesn't sound patronizing to the listeners, but since many of you are basically uh, subsisting on uh, student loans uh, for your, you know, rent, utilities, all the expenses of your life, um, the term even like refinance might not have a lot of practical meaning, even if you could, you know, pick it out as a, its definition on a multiple choice test or or write one out, but like practically what, what does that mean? What are we talking? Like, should I even like be listening? Should I skip forward on this little segment? Um, what, what in practical terms Mm -hmm. would refinancing a student loan have on a person's life, um, potentially?
1: So I think refinancing is a great topic to bring up, not just because I'm interested, I'll admit my own biases here, but I think it's important. One of the most important things for. Starting as early as medical school is to is to start educating yourself about the financial landscape. There are a lot of actors out there that don't necessarily have your best interests in mind, and without education, you're liable to be taken advantage of. When all you really want to do is work, cure people, do good, and and practice medicine. Um, so refinancing, just in its in its most simplest form is taking a loan from one organization uh, and renegotiating the terms of that loan. So you can change the interest rate, you can change the term that you're paying off the loan, you can change who's holding onto the loan, so that the servicer, Um, and with with a student loan uh, refinancing, what you're looking to do is take it out of where most people, most medical students get their loans from the federal government, taking out of the public sector and refinancing it within the private
0: sector. Ah, so hence, hence you mentioning it's important to know whether or not you're going to be eligible for uh, public service loan uh, forgiveness, because obviously you don't really want to go through the process in refinancing like it is with you know buying a home or something. There is some upfront cost to a uh, refinance of a student loan. Is that true? Not the case.
1: So, so it is not the case at Panacea Financial. I can't speak to all of our rivals and competitors out there, um, but at Panacea Financial, there is no cost to refinance the student loan. There's no application fee. There's no origination fee. There's no prepayment penalties. Is really just a straightforward renegotiation, effectively, where you get to set your new interest rate and your new term and your new payments uh, with a new organization.
0: Okay. So how do they uh, look into to doing that then?
1: Well, I'd invite people to go to fantasyoffinancial.com slash ITB and you can take a look. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> right from there, we've got loads of resources on student loans. Um, we have one of our advisory board members, Dr. Josh Daly. He is published in the Journal of Graduate Medical Education and Clinical Pediatrics all about what is basically what kind of science or best practices exist for medical, lo- uh, excuse me, medical education loans. And so he's, he's a pediatric cardiologist out of Arkansas. He was trained in Cincinnati. He's absolutely brilliant. And this has been his passion and his academic research. And he's helped us draft and craft our articles and decision-making tools for anybody to come in and use to learn more about student loans the landscape and what they can do with them to, to maintain financial
0: health got it so um do you guys then just refinance loans or are you able to um, provide loans i mean i know you guys do like the prn loans um mm-hmm. for the fourth year students or um Residents, early career physicians, right, who, who mm-hmm. need a little extra cash at a fair rate. But mm-hmm. what about um, you're a third year medical student and uh, I don't know, you need more money to cover living expenses and the subsidized federal loans don't cover it? This is
1: not uncommon in expensive cities. Federal loan disbursements tend to be capped and there may be some small adjustments for cost of living. But there's a really big difference between Ohio and New York, right? Um, and and so we totally understand that Panacea Financial does not provide provide loans to pay for tuition. Um, what we have exactly, like like Patrick mentioned, are PRN loans, which can help offset some of your costs. Um, in for, for short term expenses. Um, but if there's if, if you're really in dire straits in a very expensive community and the public loans that you're getting aren't enough, that would be something that you want to readdress with the financial aid officer at the school and see what options exist for you.
0: Gotcha. Well, I would think a lot of our listeners, I mean, some of them are, are probably studying for um, step one or step two, who are um, coming from out of the co- schools out of the country um, or programs out of the country. Um, but for those of you who are U.S. grads and aren't exactly sure what your career path is going to be, uh, probably the best place to start is to get in now with Panacea Financial and open a checking or savings account, start building a relationship with them, and, and then later on at least explore the uh, refinance options, see if it makes sense. I'm going to keep saying that on these segments and throughout the series, because yes, thank you, Ned, for you guys and and supporting this, uh, supporting inside the boards and medical education. But at the same time, I want our community and us to support you guys, because what you're doing is cool. It's um, like your slogan is uh, banking for doctors by doctors. You have a bunch of doctors in the um, you know, an advisory board of physicians and at least two of you on the uh, co-founding team are actual physicians, correct? Practicing in med peds. There you go. So um, like Ned said, panaceafinancial.com slash ITB. And then always we have to include Panacea Financial, a division of Sona Bank member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. This is our Health Systems Science Series. Today, we are discussing healthcare economics and policy um, with our guest, Kate Kim, who's a second year medical student at Rutgers and faculty member and associate dean for continuing medical education, pharmacist, physician, and former um I, I don't know what your title would be, but you were very involved in the pharmaceutical and biotech industries um, prior to your your current academic role, um, Dr. Paul Weber. Just to provide an overview of what we're going to kind of try to cover in today's episode is just... Quick to look at the USMLE content outline. Just a reminder, guys, you, this is stuff you have to know. This is not afterthought stuff. It's the third pillar of medical education. And these are the things uh, within medical education that really sets us as physicians apart from pure science. So, what are we talking about today? We're going to touch on areas of healthcare policy and economics, things that uh, uh, in the USMLE content outline are listed as access to care issues, social justice, types of insurance, navigating the insurance system, reimbursement issues affecting uh, safety and quality, uh, emergency services, pay for performance. Um, lots of things related to policy uh, could be said, but the goal is to communicate something to you today that you know you can take with you uh, to the exam center on test day. Big thanks to you both for joining us today. Uh, We'll start with Kate though. You're a second year medical student, um, but there's probably more to you as a person than that. So you wanna give us a little bit of your bio and maybe uh, the thing professionally or personally you're most proud of accomplishing thus far in your life?
2: Sure, well, thank you so much for having us on today. Yeah, sure. So I can talk a little bit about my journey to how um, I got here and just about some of my experiences prior to coming to medical school. So I went to undergrad um, down in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown University. And I think it's really where I kind of got interested in health policy in the first place.
0: Were you at the Center for Clinical Bioethics at all?
2: I was not affiliated with that department, but um, yes, I know that Georgetown has a great bioethics department. Um, as a whole. So during my junior year, um, I actually interned on Capitol Hill at the House of Representatives um, under one of the congressmen of New Jersey. And it was really then that I became more interested in the policy aspect of things. And I think just being in college in, you know, our nation's capital, it really was contagious, that, that energy, that political climate, that really drew the students and just the population to really just care about things larger than oneself. That was my first taste of working um, in the policy space. It was 2017, I believe. So there were a lot of big changes going on um, in healthcare at that time too. It was right around the American Healthcare Act um, that was being debated. And so it was a really fast moving time to be on the Hill. And um, when I was in college, I guess I was still kind of unsure about whether I wanted to pursue a degree in medicine, a career in medicine. So I was really exploring all of these different areas in healthcare um, before really choosing to apply. And after my internship on the Hill, I decided, because I still wasn't completely sure whether I wanted to go to medical school, I decided I wanted to gain a little bit more experience in this space. So I spent a gap year, or the first year after graduation, working in healthcare consulting um, in the D.C. area. And I was in the federal health and um, human services sector, so our main client was um, CMS, We'll actually be talking about this a little more in the cases later, but um, the project I was working on was a bundled payment evaluation project, kind of examining the efficacies of the models that they laid out recently. And it was there that I learned a lot about just like how much of an impact and real kind of changes that can come from policy and how that affects physicians as a whole too,
0: yeah. And it's it's probably like a black box to a lot of us, you know, like healthcare policy seems nebulous at best, I would say, unless, I mean, from my perspective, maybe the rest of the medical students out there don't feel that way, but uh, I certainly do.
2: Yeah, no, definitely for me as well, too. And I, I was so grateful to have had that opportunity to really, it was really a learning experience for me being out there in the workforce and, you know, gaining all that firsthand experience. And it really kind of taught me more about the workings of, you know, what it means to be in healthcare policy. So then I guess from that experience, I, I decided to stop trying to, you know, separate this whole idea of, oh, I'm really interested in policy and still my desire to want to practice medicine. By then I'd gotten a lot more clinical experience too, as well. And so both of these things really interested me. And so you know, I thought to myself, why do these things have to be separate per se? So I still wanted to be a doctor and, you know, work with patients and stuff, but I really thought that I could still somehow pursue that field of policy as well. And I guess I thought that that was also really important for doctors to have when we are treating our patients and when we are navigating um, the systems of healthcare as well. So, So, yeah, so that was kind of my background prior to coming to medical school and really the catalyst for developing this um, non-credit elective with my classmate, Sonia Ball and um, Dr. Weber.
0: Yeah, and we'll uh, definitely want to expand on that um, because that's, well, we'll get into that. But (laughs) Dr. Weber, your background, tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Sure. Thank you, Patrick. I'll add, like Kate, that I was influenced positively as a medical student because I my training was during the height um, early days, but the emergence of the AIDS epidemic. And during that time, there are many parallels that I've seen that really match with the current COVID pandemic. Particularly at the time, there was not an initially or initially a medicine that was available to treat uh, HIV, but more importantly, it was just a lack of information, a lack of knowledge, and a lot of misunderstanding. So that led me to a tremendous passion to want to make a positive difference in the world for my patients, for my community, and especially in a broader sense. So I made a commitment. I actually wrote something down in a diary that I wanted to do something special in HIV-AIDS. And that was a a journey now that's been for well over 30 years of really a lifetime of service. And along the way, uh, one of my mentors told me, this was back about uh, over a dozen years ago, that I should look into health policy. As a career in an area, and really put that together with my experience as a physician and as a as a pharmacist, and that stuck with me from that phone call on a on a car ride home, and since then, uh, which was in the summer of two thousand nine, I began to do uh, teaching myself. I met colleagues who were trained in the area, and I also then tr- also transitioned had transitioned into oncology. So my intersection was. How do you improve uh, awareness, uh, basically about these new medicines that were emerging in cancer? How do you help the public understand uh, where they fit in? And also their emerged access issues, because we were bringing medicines that were starting to really change the boundaries and especially improve the standards of care in cancer. But also, um, they were becoming increasingly more expensive. So I really that's where policy really helped and, and and a combination of advocacy which is bringing a voice to individuals who did not either have the time maybe not the financial wherewithal and certainly were dealing with a lot of stress so having the voice for both patients professional organizations and and others was was something I began to to gain interest and as I came to Rutgers um, it gave me a great opportunity then to to see what was possible especially working with talented and um, exceptionally um, dedicated students like Kate and her colleague Sonia when we put this course together to learn of the students' interest uh, in health policy was uh, very heartwarming to me because it's something I wanted to do. Once again, you heard Kate's perspective, but I also wanted to combine. I didn't see this as two separate paths, but I felt that the physicians now, and especially as we train our future physicians, those uh, like Kate, that we provide them to be as best equipped as possible for the medicine of tomorrow not only the medicine that's coming up. And and that's why, uh, as you know, as you've also referenced, Patrick, the AMA's Health System Science uh, Initiative and really having that as a, a third pillar of undergraduate medical education is where this all fits. So essentially everything has come together. And it's been, from my perspective, a multi-decade, but it's been very exciting to see. Uh, it remains a wide open and uncharted path, but it is also, to me, a great uh, representation of how uh, you can get individuals together who may not have previously worked together and really develop a common good. And that's what I see coming out of health policy, and especially even now we're seeing examples of this with uh, COVID.
0: That's good to hear. The um, And I, and at this point, I probably would want to talk more specifically about this uh, course, this elective year. Uh, you've both referenced, because the way we had set up this series was to take a look at the publications that Elsevier had put together with uh, the AMA related to health system science and uh, look at kind of like key elements that are covered in that book. And so we put together a plan for six um, discussions. One was generally what is health system science? And then today we've got uh, the economics, uh, policy, healthcare delivery uh, kind of aspects, um, and there's there's uh, four others. But with each one, uh, the AMA found us individuals who have some practical experience or deliverables, um, if you will, related to the area that we're discussing. So um, healthcare delivery, economics, and policy, it's one of the, the chapters in the Health System Science Review book. How does your work in this elective you're referring to kind of bear on that? Now, I'll, I'll ask Kate to kind of explore that more to start.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so as I briefly discussed earlier, so this whole thing kind of came to fruition because just like through a combination of a lot of teamwork. So my classmate Sonia and I um, both had a really strong shared interest of pursuing more education in the health policy field during our time at Robert Wood Johnson. And so we had the idea to create a non-credit elective to fit in the framework of the health systems curriculum um, at our school. And so we approached Dr. Weber, who we knew had substantial experience in this field, and we thought he would make the perfect faculty mentor to kick things off. And then right around this time is when COVID really hit hard. Um, so then we, you know, completely had to adapt um, because we had planned initially for this elective to take full, the form of lunch lectures with speakers um, and students in attendance live and such. And so we thought about ways of adapting this to a virtual format. And in addition, so the full name of our elective is the healthcare policy and emergency preparedness elective. So that is where the emergency preparedness aspect also came in because we wanted to integrate just the different responses um, to the COVID-19 pandemic and how to best equip ourselves to handle um, these kinds of emergencies moving forward. Our curriculum really tries to cover a lot of different areas of healthcare policy. So this could take um, the form of health insurance and reimbursement, advocacy in the legislative process, role of social media and healthcare, um, etc. And something that I really love about our elective, and that's really special to me, is that not only do we um, hear from field experts as our lecturers, but we really try to incorporate that peer to peer learning as well. So So far, um, this is our first year of the elective, but so far we have had student speakers for our virtual events. And that, I think, was a really great opportunity for us to learn from one another. And I know for me personally, especially during my first year, it was always so great to just hear different backgrounds from my um, fellow students and just learn from the older students as well who have kind of gone through similar experiences as we have, um, and it was really inspiring. So that's something that I really feel is special about our elective as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I looked at the syllabus, and it, it mentions some things that I, just even as as titles, I'm thinking, man, I wish I had more of this in med school, but um, you talk about, you know, introducing uh, students to the fundamentals of healthcare policy, health insurance and reimbursement, uh, for instance, and I think that's that's so critical to me now. You know, as an attending, um, I spent seven years in the military. Never had to worry about billing, um, coding, things of those nature that are day to day part of my life now. And so I remember when I uh, <laughs> I started working in the hospital as a, a laborist, thinking like uh, I really don't know what any of this stuff means, E and M codes. Just reading this, and and so the thing I've I've come to say is, you know, like if if I work at Taco Bell, I understand how I'm paid, (laughs) and that is how many you know tacos or chalupas or you know whatever Taco Bell is selling now. However many of those are sold, that's kind of where my money, um, you know, in compensation comes from. As a physician. There's so many different ways to be paid. Um, I learned even more when my wife was negotiating her first job out of residency. Um, so many different ways of, of uh, or pots of money from which salaries are drawn. And, and to me, that sort of follow the money can reveal a lot about um Institutional values, institutional efficacy, how organizations are, are run, what their um, you know commitments are, and my kind of response to you know how do doctors get paid, healthcare economics in general is you know shrug my shoulders. I don't really know, and it's it's nice to have people be able to speak to how my premium as a patient that I pay for uh, insurance each month, eventually translate into compensating my doctor and keeping the lights on at the uh, office where they work and and paying the support staff. It's just crazy to me how complex this is. And that's just a small, small slice of uh, what we could be talking about today here, um, and not even the biggest focus. Uh, but I don't even know where I was going with that, but um, I just really like saying that tacos example, to be totally <laughs> frank, because I think it makes a lot of sense. But well, <laughs> but to move on to some you know actionable or um, questions that we can really dive into. So uh, fundamentals of healthcare policy mentioned here in this syllabus. I mean, what are the fundamentals of healthcare policy?
3: Well, I think if you're going to look uh, at fundamentals, you really start with the value equation. And that is You don't necessarily have to be a math expert, but if you just uh, picture the uh, letter V as one side of the equation, an equal sign, and then on the numerator, a Q for quality and, and basically also outcomes, and then the denominator is C for cost. And I also would add a multiplier to that equation of the patient experience. So the left side of the equation is value, and then the right has. The outcome over cost times a multiplier of what the patient experiences. So when we think about it, if you really boil it down, if a patient has, a, if we have a, a great experience with something, it has more value. And for us in healthcare, if the patient experience can be improved or is, or is excellent, that also from the patient's perspective is of higher value. If we can also then improve their outcomes, how they are able to live each day, and perhaps do the, do what they wish to do, and do that to a greater degree, we've improved the outcome. And along the way, if we're able to reduce the cost, we lower the denominator, that increases the value. So that's our, to me, that's a starting point. And when we go back, and another fundamental part of this is the legislation, now the law, of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as the ACA, which has been law for over ten years. It was. Uh, it was actually um, became law in in March of twenty ten, and and that has really you know spawned so many of the components of where how we've seen different components of healthcare emerge. You know, Kate mentioned earlier her her, uh, her work with CMS on the consulting basis, but the the Innovation Center and some of the models, including bundled payments, which we'll talk about in one of the cases, that's was a direct result of that legislation from the again the ACA. So we have these these uh, fundamental um, springboards that have now amazingly over a decade that have led us to um, what I see as an increased interest and an increased importance for healthcare professionals, particularly physicians, to better understand and have certainly at a minimum an increased awareness of how this fits, knowing both the world around you as well as the the at the same time making sure we stay stay absolutely true to our one-on-one conversations with patients. And, and always the most important uh, part of what we do time you know in, in the in the moment is being fully focused on the patient that we're seeing at the time.
0: Absolutely. Kate, in in helping put this elective together, did you consider what were, in your judgment, or even objectively measurable gaps in students' undergraduate medical education related to healthcare policy and and related matters? Like, how did you decide what uh, would need to be included as useful in um, approaching these things and teaching them or learning them?
2: Yeah. So. I guess one big theme that we try to highlight um, throughout our elective that we think is particularly important for medical students, um, we're going to be future physicians, is the concept of advocacy. So we learn all of this, um, these useful kind of tidbits of information. We have all of these knowledge sources that are given to us, but Really how to utilize that to make actionable change, I think is really important. So that's how we decided on our self-directed learning component of our elective. So we ask each of the participants to write an essay, which can be a form of a letter to um, a local elected official really advocating for an issue that they believe is important for them. So that's something that I think is going to be really useful for the students um, anytime in their career as well. And as far as what you were saying specifically about any gaps in our knowledge, so another aspect of this elective that I think is, you know, important to its development is that Because we are new and because this was our kickoff year, we're really valuing feedback and input from the students that are participating in the elective. So right from the very start with our kickoff lecture, we encourage students to submit feedback and any topic areas in which they wanted to see um, more lecture topics from from us in the future. So we could reach out to the appropriate experts or um, lecturers to have that in the future. So a lot of what our spring semester um, series is going to entail is directly derived from um, the students themselves.
0: Well, in that case, do you want to get into more of what uh, you might learn in an elective like this by taking on some of these cases?
3: Yes, let's uh, let's start. But again, I would... Uh Mentioned Patrick that the whole goal of the course is to me is to make just to bring this to life. Health policy can seem very nebulous. Yeah, you listed a whole number of subjects, and we didn't even have time to list the whole chapter in it. Right. <laughs> but what I really what struck me was looking at student feedback, and it said to me not only just teach us the topics, but really bring it to life. And that's what I think is so important in by having this this forum for the students. It's a living, breathing course. It's going to be fresh. It's going to change uh, semester to semester, not even year to year. And that certainly will be. Uh, we'll we'll pay very close attention to current events. Yeah. But that's the exciting part of having the students feel ownership, leadership, and again that they can t- take away and say, you know what, I want to learn more about this subject. I heard a great speaker. I want to know more and really peak pull out their curiosity and their inquisitiveness uh, and let them take it further. So to inspire them.
0: Yeah. All right, so our first case, Uh, Kate, why don't you go ahead and read this stem and then um, we'll dive into the different aspects of healthcare policy that this draws out. And just disclaimer, uh, for some of these cases, yes, thank you to Elsevier for letting us use this content, Uh, but some of these are not quite in USMLE compliant um, structure, Um, but nevertheless, uh, we're confident that you'll take away something that you can apply to um, your test taking and in the future your career itself. So, all right, let's do it.
2: Okay. So this case, for decades, Trouble Healthcare, a statewide system comprised of 15 hospitals and 22 community clinics has relied on fee-for-service reimbursement models. Amy Jacobs, CEO of Trouble, has completed her annual performance review with the board of directors. Over the last year, Trouble's main competitor, Clough Hospital Corporation, has moved to an entirely value-based model. And now Amy faces pressure from the board to do the same to keep up with the ever-changing marketplace. During next fiscal year, Amy will ask her team to develop bundled payments. Which of the following is not an objective of value-based healthcare? A, cost containment. B, generating volume. C, creating more access. Or D, improving patient outcomes.
0: Well, we can break this down and look at the STEM and uh, you know, kind of pull out various terms or pertinent positives uh, negatives um, and then uh, discuss what the correct answer is or we can give the correct answer now I'd kind of leave it since you're uh, the faculty here Dr. Weber to tell us what the best pedagogy is for those who are listening and probably brushing their teeth or driving along trying to learn a little bit about this stuff
3: yeah I'll'll front provide the answer but I want to be able to give everyone uh, the background behind it so our answer was is, Uh, B, generating volume. That's what's not an objective of value-based healthcare. And let me explain why. What I like to tell my students is they should be able to derive answers or information and not simply memorize it. So let me help you with the background. The fee-for-service model, which has been around for some time, is set up so that providers are paid for the services that are performed. And so what's resulted is that providers wind up ordering more tests, performing more, more procedures, and managing more patients in order to be paid more. That's generating volume. You do more, you uh, generate more income. But what happens here is that uh, you still have costs that are determined by what the commercial payers will pay in the private market. And then there's a certain percentage of me- what Medicare would pay for these services. But really, overall, it's uh, that these different services, the different component parts are separate. Each little piece becomes a particular service. Thus. The other term is that it's unbundled. It's all by itself. Each piece is by itself. They're not all put together. So, thus, each service is paid for separately, and then providers are paid for retrospectively with the services they, services they deliver based on their charges or annual fee schedule.
0: So, you're saying if I do a hysteroscopy in the hospital and I'm, of course, using equipment the hospital bought, I've got the anesthesia people there, I've got a scrub nurse, I've got, you know, perhaps an assistant, we've got supplies, we've got my knowledge and, uh, you know, um, uh, expertise required license to perform the procedure. So you've got all these little things make up one payment, if you will.
3: Well, actually, it's each piece gets its separate payment. Okay. So let's say the you as the doctor in charge would receive your fee, then there may be a fee to either an outpatient center or hospital for the room itself, and then the services, let's say, if you need to have an anesthesiologist or other team members. So every component part gets a separate fee, and that's what happens. It?
0: But there's a different way to do it.
3: Yeah, so there's a multiplier effect. And we'll show you, actually, when we talk about the bundle payments, how this now gets put together. So what everyone should take away here is in that fee-for-service, each piece winds up getting charged or paid for separately. And, and everything gets, keeps generating. So you have a multiplier effect. Got it. So the inflection point about the ACA, or Affordable Care Act, what was coming out of this was value-based care. So we talked about the value equation, V equals Q over C, as the basis. And so the effort here was, how do we, most importantly, try to improve our outcomes? And then concurrently, can we reduce care, reduce costs, excuse me, reduce health care costs? And that's what led to value-based care off of this model, improving, va- improving value, improving quality and outcomes, and also decreasing cost. So what, this, what value-based healthcare does is it ties payments for care delivery to the quality of care provided, as we mentioned. But one of these models is um, a bundled payment model. And what happens is right. an insurer looks and says, as an example, you you can do this procedure, uh, let's say a a knee surgery. And instead of each individual who's part of it and each, uh, you know, again, as I mentioned, the hospital room, let's say, or outpatient center room and and different charges, uh, it's all put together and say from uh, going rates, we know that if you perform this procedure and and, uh, do it according to evidence-based guidelines, it should cost a certain amount. So basically you get a total amount up front but you get from there you're you you're not able to really get any more money on it unless there's some extraordinary circumstance so they figure out what everything it is and they put it all together if you will in a bundle and that's what a bundled payment is combining everything so what uh, we want you also to appreciate further is maybe again this this next question which is what's what are the component parts of bundled payments to further explain it to the to the audience So first, we talked about value-based care. Now we're going to take the different types of models that have arose out of the generation of value-based care. Three of them are accountable care organizations, bundle payments, and patient-centered medical homes. But our focus will again be on bundle payments. So I'm going to read, or actually ask Kate to read the next question, which goes into about bundle payments, and I'll provide further explanation about how what characterizes bundle payments.
2: Sure. So the next question asks When designed appropriately, bundled payments should include which of the following components? A, a single payment that covers all the care required to treat a patient's medical condition. B, being contingent on achieving good condition specific outcomes. C, a price that provides a fair margin for delivering effective and efficient care. D, built in parameters for responsibility for unrelated care
3: or E, all of the above? All right. I I suspect that the audience probably has this one, that it's all the above. As we mentioned earlier about a single payment, we talked about outcomes, developing a price that, again, is, is reflective of, of everyone's effort. And the other uh, D, I'll talk more about this, about if if something happens, let's say this patient who just had knee surgery where where i am now in the northeast we just had had a storm and there's a lot of ice around and let's say they they wind up in a car accident and wind up getting needing another knee surgery well that's an unrelated event who pays for that well if you're in the bundle payment really it should be that you build in your your parameters about who that that essentially you, you don't have to pay for this whole new second surgery which is again unrelated or, uh, to the original one so when you look into the details about what are five main characteristics for bundle payments, the first, first item is that there is a single payment that covers all the care required to treat a patient's medical conditions. We put everything together. The second is that it's contingent on achieving a good condition-specific outcomes. Uh, in some cases, there's even care guarantees. But this is, as mentioned earlier, if you follow evidence-based uh, practices and guidelines, you should generally wind up with good condition-specific outcomes. The third part is that you cover a defined patient group uh, based on its complexity. So if you have patients, let's say, are at a higher risk, you again provide um, appropriate payment to account for that, maybe some extra care that would be needed. The fourth is about uh, having specified limits of responsibility for unrelated care issues that arise that no one expected and certainly not related to the particular episode that's or or the particular care that's rendered under this payment. And also you have, there are actually provisions put in to mitigate against any outliers or catastrophic events. So this helps again, if you're going to ask physicians and groups to take on risk, they need to have some level of protection as well. So that's where you have limits of responsibility So that's one of the choices about built-in parameters. And finally, a a price that provides a fair margin for delivering effective and efficient care. Most importantly, we want our patients to do well. We want them to be able to return or to to gain the lives that they hope to have. We want to make that possible. So those are the five characteristics, and that's what led to bundled payments. Help, basically, once again, a single payment for services provided for an entire episode of care.
0: So with that being said, uh, you know you mentioned as part of the bundled payments, uh, you, ideally you have the specified limits of responsibility for unrelated care. A good example, I think, would be that knee surgery and then a completely different uh, knee injury related to a slip and fall. Um, that might get just a different
3: bundled payment, correct? Then you would look at that as a whole nother, what's called episode of care, a whole nother instance in which you need to do care once again, but what you're doing in a bundled payment is saying for this next step of care that the patient needs, we'll give you all the money to account for what shouldn't usually be done according to the guidelines and evidence and best practices.
0: Now, if a patient gets osteomyelitis following that knee surgery and requires you know, 12 weeks of uh, infused antibiotics and another Uh, you know, a couple surgeries and things like that. How do bundled payments handle something of that nature? Is that where you have this uh, risk adjustment um, in criterion three you mentioned?
3: And that gets back also to the fourth point about specified limits of responsibility. So, certainly uh, there are situations that do arise, but if it's shown that the team uh, did everything it possibly could in terms of following the proper procedures, and again, following evidence-based medicine and guidelines, then they would have this level of protection, which it would be within those limits of responsibility.
0: That makes sense too. It it also seems, I mean, it seems better you know, or or more good in terms of uh, the ethics of it. is Is my inclination to to uh, consider it that way, um, removing that incentivization that. Uh, the more venal among us are probably, uh, you know, subject to uh, overblowing, um, overdoing procedures, things of that nature. So, is that part of the idea that bring this in line with the ethics of our profession and commitment to patients? Because it can't just be economics.
3: I yeah, I don't see them as certainly being separated. I mean, first and foremost, all of us take an oath. Right. Let's begin with the Hippocratic Oath when you're um, yep. at the white coat ceremony. And uh, and certainly whether that's, and I know there's, you know, the students this year, many of them, probably most, if not all had a virtual white coat ceremony, but whether in whatever format it is, when you first take the oath in the beginning of your journey to when you graduate and once again, take the oath and really, you know, the, the ethics, I also say your character and your judgment all come into play and we want certainly everyone to be uh, compensated fairly, but most importantly, we want to be able to do the best that we can unencumbered by uh, or feeling torn, if you will, to have to make a choice between economics and ethics. Instead, ethics should really be the fabric. We're, we're, we're conducting our profession because we we are in a trusted profession. And in addition to have a medical license where you know, society is granting us responsibilities as well so we have we're responsible to society, certainly to of course to our patients, families, populations, and communities. Uh, ethics to me again is the the constant fabric and thread uh, in which and within everything that we do.
0: yeah you sound like Ed Pellegrino. who uh, I was his uh, at the Center for Clinical Bioethics at Georgetown, one of his fellows in 2007 um, just inspiring individual try to name drop him all the time because absolutely everyone should read some Edmund Pellegrino but
3: yes and I had read some of his his work just a couple months ago in a different course that I I teach in we we have an ethics we actually have a three-part ethics component to it so
0: that's another conversation but one I would like to have all right let's move on (laughs) Um, back to policy itself policy proper because you can't separate really anything in medicine from the ethics but
3: so the the next case and I'll have uh, Kate, read again the, the, uh, the stem and the, the, the question is, uh, uh, again, to me really t- uh, exemplifies, you know, reading through the question, but really us today boiling down, uh, what are your key takeaways? What are the health policy principles and concepts that we want you to, to uh, be able to remember and carry with you your whole career?
2: Ben, an airplane mechanic for MT Airlines, was injured on the tarmac during a routine engine safety check. He went to the company's health clinic for evaluation. During his intake, he provided important information to the doctor, but it was quickly decided that he had to go to the emergency department for treatment. The clinic does not have an electronic health record and did not bill his employee health plan. Still, Ben remains concerned that his information at the clinic could be shared with his boss. In this scenario, which of the following is protected under the HIPAA privacy rule? A, a patient's name, address, birth date, and social security number. B, payment or billing information related to an individual's health. C, a patient's physical or mental health condition. D, all of the above. Or E, none of the above.
3: All right. So I will go again to my my point about deriving rather than memorizing, because this this particular uh, case has... A few key and very important fundamental components to it. So let's begin with, of course, providing the answer. So the answer here is a patient's physical or mental condition. And I know the audience immediately is going to wonder, well, why not some of the other choices? Well, first, when you think about it, regardless of whether it's HIPAA or other types of settings, it is our responsibility to hold, you know, when patients trust us with their most personal information, that's where we have to be very mindful of when and how we share it. So in this case, you would not share a a patient's physical or mental health condition to a individual superior, uh, their supervisor. Now, but going further, what what this particular case is really asking the audience to do is to recall the concept of protected health information, which again is something very critical to understanding HIPAA regulations or protections. So I'm going to read a statement to everyone, which is that Protected health information, or you may hear it as PHI, is any information about the health status, provision of health care, or payment for health care that is created or collected by a covered entity. Now, it's a different language, but let me take a pause here. What's a covered entity? It can be basically like a a physician's office or a hospital where your primary effort is related to health care or a business associate, so someone who helps you with it. But the important, again, the key thing is what are protected health information? And there's many different, there are about actually 18 of them listed if you go to the the website um, for health and human services. But if we look at this, let's go back to the case. Here you have the patient works for an airline. So the primary business is airline, it's transportation, but they have an employee clinic. So a unit of the airline is one that provides care. So, what the, the other key point here is that the clinic does not have an electronic health record and does not bill the employee health plan. And what that brings in is, how do, does it meet the condition of what's called a hybrid covered entity? So, again, I would ask the audience after listening to this, take a look at the definition of hybrid covered entity. But basically, what we're talking about is in order for the HIPAA rule, HIPAA privacy rules to apply, the entity not only needs to be um, providing care, but it um, also should be able to, or it should have, uh, be involved with exchange of electronic uh, health information electronically, and also will bill a health plan. But in this case, the clinic does not have an electronic health record and does not bill the employee health plan. So it doesn't fully meet a, the definition of a hybrid uh, entity, and thus it would be actually uh, excluded from HIPAA protections. That's why I emphasized in the beginning of this discussion that choice A, where you have the patient's name, address, birth date, and social security number, that can be found in other information. And since this, this clinic is not as defined, a covered entity under our HIPAA, that's not protected information, meaning that it could uh, it still could be linked back to the, to the patient. And of course, not be covered. The second about payment or billing, the the issue here is that the clinic doesn't bill. So uh, once again, this information is not going to be protected under HIPAA's privacy rule because it's not the the uh, clinic does not meet the definition of a hybrid entity. But so therefore, it's certainly not all the above, and it's not none of the above because, as mentioned, a patient's physical or mental condition is not information that can be should be provided to an individual supervisor. Certainly, this is where we know that if we need to have an absence, we have to get a doctor's note. And that's why. And I, myself, having been a line manager or being a supervisor, it was never my place to ask exactly what happened to the patient. But as long as they provided me with with a document or a letter from a doctor, then their absence, of course, was excused. But the key here is to let's, let's take this case actually now and make it a part two. If... The, uh, this clinic actually did have electronic records and build the employee health plan. All we're actually doing is take, taking the two knots out of this case. Then it would be hybrid covered entity, which means once again, that there is a health a unit that, that provides care within a business that overall its predominant business is not related to health care. So airline as a transportation, yes, some of the airlines are now carrying the, the vaccines, but that's not their number one priority, if you will, or their number one part of their business. It's to transport. But rendering and providing care is not what they're doing, except they offer an employee health clinic. So, And if the clinic did build...
0: Uh, sorry to interject, but to be clear here, Ben, our patient in this scenario is concerned about his information being shared um, with his employer. Are you saying that in as written, where... The airline does not have an electronic health record and does not bill the insurance that Ben has. That his information can be shared with the employer under HIPAA I mean, or outside of HIPAA.
3: Yeah, well, what can be shared is his name, certainly his address, his birthday, social security number, because that also would be available in the employment records. Okay. Again, billing information really gets into some more non specific details. But what cannot be shared, and that's why it remains the correct answer here, and as written, is what's the specificity about his health, his physical or mental health condition. In this case, it's not described, but you know he had probably who knows what he was injured, so right. But the details of that cannot be disclosed to his boss. So it's different between the company and a supervisor. The direct supervisor should not know specific details about your health in order to maintain a certain distance and avoid, you know, issues, let's say whether the person has that come up eventually in their, their uh, year end review and so on. So this question, um, you know, again, is a little tricky and that's why I go back to saying, what are we really trying to, what's really trying to be teased out or what's trying to be emphasized with this case. It's one to go and look at what is protected health information, again what are what is what is the HIPAA privacy rule? why is it set up uh, again to protect us so that our health information is not widely disseminated and certainly not um, you know and, and if it is, it's done within the proper boundaries and and rules again, knowing that if if a person sees a health professional for a health related condition that the details of that um, condition are not disclosed because you know, because that's what they're trusting us, right? They're trusting us with their, I call it, they're trusting us with their innermost secrets. Um, Finally, uh, the other thing, and Kate, if you would just scroll a little bit, is a particular uh, definition, which I mentioned earlier about a hybrid entity. So mainly you think about HIPAA from a a free, let's say a freestanding physician office or uh, a health system. But in this case, you have a business, which happens to have an employee health clinic. Right. So this, this, uh, that's what I hope that everyone takes away here is just knowing what the definition of a hybrid entity is under HIPAA. And also, please be sure to look at what a patient, what protected health information is. Those are the, the key things that you want to do because it's not just for a board exam, uh, but it really is something that you will, will want to know and need to know for your whole career is what information can we pass along and when and to whom.
0: Absolutely. Super important. And most of the organizations for which, um, you'll work or intern or research are going to have annual, um, or some, uh, recurring HIPAA education in, I mean, I think a lot of us, um, have a sense of, oh, this is one of these computer-based trainings that I can hover my mouse over the arrow and you know, click as fast as I can and say, oh, okay, you know, I know about HIPAA. And that's, uh, number one, wrong. You should really know this stuff because there are very practical issues that, that you face even day to day. For instance, I had uh, uh, just privacy in, in my um, opioid treatment uh, clinic we have one patient who is is there who's uh, fa- who has a family member there as well they're not on good terms and don't know that the others there and it's 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 um mm-hmm. it is a tough situation but it's not really tough to navigate the privacy aspects because Each of those patients um, have this siloed relationship with the entity itself. And then, of course, uh, me as the physician and uh, the others involved in their care. uh, It's where you're not going to be like, oh, how's your sister doing? Um, That would be to disclose protected health information, I think, by extension, because you'd be saying at this opioid treatment program, you have a patient who's being treated, therefore, by you know extension, disclosing that the person has an opioid use disorder, um, but I, I would say like not not everyone gets those what seem to me obvious nuances, uh, or not even really nuances, but um, you know the details of HIPAA or even in broad strokes, it's it's not really just a. A computer-based training annual thing that you have to do. It's it's part of our profession. It's part of the ethics, um, and it's just codified in law uh, to make things more clear. Hopefully,
3: yes. So really, again, it's about privacy. What do your patients come to us because they they expect us to keep, especially their health information, private. So that's why it is so important to maybe not everyone can remember every element of the law, but at least once again know where to find it, be aware of it. And know what your responsibilities are uh, related to it.
0: Now, we have a a few minutes. Um, Did you guys want to go into any more of um, this quickly? I don't know. This reading the 8.2 seems like something you'd be familiar with, uh, Kate.
2: The next question asks, what is the role that congressional authorizing and appropriation committees play in the legislative process? A, authorizing committees, establish the operational rules for newly passed statutes and modify operational rules for existing statutes, and appropriation committees decide how much federal funding is allocated for discretionary programs and statutes. B, authorizing committees decide how much federal funding is allocated for discretionary programs and statutes and appropriation committees establish the operational rules for newly passed statutes and modify operational rules for existing statutes. C, authorizing committees review and modify bills before they are brought to a vote in the Senate or House of Representatives and appropriation. Committees decide how much federal funding is allocated for discretionary programs and statutes. Or D, authorizing committees decide how much federal funding is allocated for discretionary programs and statutes and appropriation. committees review and modify bills before they are brought to a vote in the Senate or House of Representatives.
0: It's kind of definitional, but. uh, Yeah, some night I wouldn't have. I don't think I would have been able to answer this one. <laughs> they all they all sound legit.
3: <laughs> so let me help, uh, hopefully everyone to once again distill this down. So I like to think of the authorizing committees as the ones who provide the rules, and the appropriations committees are the ones who are, if you will, uh, providing the funds. So if you just take that those two just uh, that piece of information. You look at these choices, and right away, you can take out B and D because, as I mentioned, the authorizing committees, they're giving you the rules. And the way these are written, they're talking about authorizing committees providing funding. So right away, you take that out. And for C is is incorrect because the authorizing committee can only begin its work once a, a piece of legislation has become law, meaning that it's passed by the House, the Senate, and also signed by the President that's when it formally becomes a statute. So an authorizing committee wouldn't review or modify a bill before it gets voted upon. So if you look at the timeline and how a bill gets passed, uh, so now you consider it's been passed by both chambers of of, uh, Congress and also signed by the president, so it becomes law, it becomes what's called legislative law, but now you have to figure out how are you gonna put this into action? How are you going to implement it? That's the operational rule or component or what's called administrative law and that's what the authorizing committee does it helps tell you how now that we have this law in place how do we put it into place or how does it operate and then once you say well this is how it operates of course we need funding in order to make it happen so the appropriations committee is the one that provides the federal funding i do hope that uh, that approach really you know helps boil down this language into something that if you will, is more digestible, but most importantly, memorable to the audience and gives you a sense of how, basically how things work in uh, either in DC or in your local state house and so on.
0: Awesome. Well, to the both of you, thank you so much for your time and uh, the work you continue to do, both in education and I'm sure in advocacy.
3: Yes, thank you. And and also best to you, uh, Patrick, for this holiday season and of course to your audience.